0: Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to the Park Hill Church podcast. My name is Evan Wickham, and I am here with the one and only doctor, AJ Sobota. How are you, AJ? Uh, It's technically Reverend Doctor, but I'm well. um, Reverend Doctor would be a (laughs) pleasure. Wonderful. Well, as promised, (laughs) I'm I'm moving into the content. We only have 40 minutes. So, (laughs) as promised last Sunday, AJ um, delivered what was what was i think a landmark sermon for our church in this moment in time as we step into year five as a church at the end of this year it was just kind of a stake in the ground moment if you haven't listened to the last uh teaching out of park hill it was aj and it was an important one all about doubt deconstruction and the spirit of god's presence in uh in the darkness and we invited at the end of that sermon We invited people to submit questions, anything that arises. And so that's what this podcast is. So that's the promise we made and we're delivering. And AJ is in Chicago at what university right now? I am teaching uh, a one-week graduate-level theology class at Southeastern University. Wonderful. Well, um, normally he can be found in Eugene, Oregon at Bushnell University, but, but you're in Chicago because you're that popular.
1: It, it really astounds me how cool I've become um, globally, really, really cosmically.
0: <laughs> that is, I, I would, I have no beef with that. I think you're wonderful. And uh, it, it is a joy to be with you. And I had such a remarkable time with the
1: church on Sunday. It was beyond life-giving for my soul and met so many remarkable humans um, who love Jesus. And it was, it was an absolute gift, Evan. So thank so you for good.
0: having me. Thank you for coming. We've been wanting you to visit our community for years. And for those of you that don't know, I'm not sure that we'll put this in the notes, so just take notes right now. Uh, he's written several books, the latest of which is entitled After Doubt How to Question Your Faith Without Losing It. Very, um, uh, yeah. And, and it's a lot, of, a lot of the content in that book is integrated with his podcast. He is he's a co host of a podcast called In Faith and Doubt alongside Nije Gupta who I also love and respect his work. I'd love to know him more. Um, yeah, you guys are incredible thinkers very important posture not just you know the positions you hold but the posture with which you hold them, I think is what this conversation is going to be all about. Um, so I just think we should jump right into these questions uh, and I want to start with this first one AJ. He said he's better being surprised by questions. So he hasn't read ahead too much. He's going to be responding on the fly. Um, But this question came from someone at Park Hill Church. And, And I think it frames the whole conversation beautifully. My family and I, he or she writes, my family and I are new to Park Hill and have recently left the church we've been going to for nine years. My husband and I are in our 20s, had kids very young. We grew up in the church. We both struggled over the years with doubts. And for me, those doubts really came to a head in the beginning of 2020 when I heard some other people's deconstruction stories, realized I had so many unanswered questions that were troubling. Things only got worse during these last two years. And I'm a point now where I honestly feel I have no idea what I believe, and it feels really scary. We've been grateful to feel like Park Hill is a safe space for those feelings and those questions, which we definitely haven't experienced in other church environments. And so I related to AJ's sermon. Is a little bit of a long question, but it sets up the whole thing. It won't all be this long. I related to AJ's sermon so much, and I somewhat resonate with what he said. Maybe sometimes people aren't really looking for an answer, um, but as someone who wants to feel confident in what I believe and understand why it's true, I have a hard time knowing who to trust. Mm. Um, And part of me feels like if I'm asking a pastor, then I'm just going to get biased info. And so I feel myself subconsciously wanting to trust outside sources way more readily than someone in the church, even though I know everybody has biases. So, my questions are threefold. (laughs) And we could actually unpack these three because I love them and I think they're important. As a fallible person, how does someone figure out what we even believe with any certainty? Mm. Mm. Um, And then, how do I feel confident? Where I get my sources from. Mm. I guess that's the only, those are the only two questions. The third one is just thanks for being safe. Uh, Mm -hmm. Mm. So, how do we trust what we, how do we even trust where we find out what we think we know? Wow. Well, my
1: um, immediate uh, response is first and foremost to the uh, individual or family that was bold enough to put that thought. Uh, that thought into words and submit it with such thoughtfulness and care. My first response is to say um, you're awesome and your posture of heart is noteworthy and God sees it and I see it. And I know Evan, you see it as well. And I don't know too many Christians at this moment in history that I, I, I would love to see more and more Christians embody that kind of curiosity about Jesus and also, um, being hesitant to overtrust in places that maybe they've previously been hurt. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm on, on the spot here, Evan. And so I'm going to respond on the spot. Uh, cause I, I, I I'm going to go with the gut level from the hip kind of perspective. Um, I have this, my immediate thought that came to mind is that I have, uh, in this, this room in my house, um, where, I keep all, my son, my son draws a lot and he has all these pieces of art that he's done over the years. And I've got this room, uh, this space in my house where I put all the stuff that he makes and I, I, I just put it all there. I don't organize it. I just put it all there. And it's gotten so full that it's like coming out on like onto my bedroom floor. It's like, there's so much of it. And I, and I don't know what to do with it all. Another room in my house um, is our cleaning closet, and I put I just throw things in there. I don't really know what to do with it, and more more often than not, that cleaning closet gets so full that it starts like falling out over all over the other stuff in the hallway and stuff. And I get the sense that for many of us, uh, it's like in our walk with Christ, uh, we have this room where we just sort of throw the things that we don't know what to do with. And we put them in that room and just sort of hope that maybe if I put them in that room, either they'll go away or they'll organize themselves or they'll or they'll sort of solve themselves. And that room often over time gets really full. And it gets so full to the point where it starts affecting a lot of things. And I just happen to really believe as a follower of Jesus at this moment in history that It is very important that whatever that room is in your life, those questions that you have about God, the Bible, the church, whatnot, I think it's a very important time in history for you to begin to take those things out of that room and honestly assess them with safe people who are going to help you follow Jesus. Mm -hmm. Uh, Meaning um, if you sweep stuff under the rug rug for too long, they're just not going to go away. Like they need to be looked at and addressed. Yeah. And it could be issues of trauma in the church. It could be Bible questions. It could be questions about God. Whatever they are, it is, it is, if we worship the God of truth, then most certainly we worship a God who wants us to seek truth and not throw away our questions and just ignore them. Mm-hmm. Your questions are sacred. They are important and they are good. And I want to suggest that maybe God wants you to find him in the questions themselves, Mm -hmm. to not run away from them. Now, the question to how to find trusted sources, that's a question. I'm a scholar and ask that question all the time. Who do I trust? And at the end of the day, my trust has to be first and foremost in the God of the universe. And that there are people that God's going to put along the way to help me point in that direction. But there are times that trusted voices are hard to come by. Um, I love in the early church, there's this document called the shepherd of Hermas, which is a early church document about how to trust. There's a section there, about how do you trust a prophet? If they come into town, how do you trust a prophet? And the author says, uh, if, if the prophet comes to town and they stay for longer than three days and ask for money, then they're not a true prophet. And they say, if the, if the prophet doesn't have character, don't listen to the prophet. I would say pay very close attention um, to people whose character reflects the way of Jesus first and foremost, and, and be willing to, to go there beginning. You can trust. I, I wouldn't, that doesn't mean that everything they say is right, but start with people who exhibit the way of Jesus and listen to them and ask,
0: ask your questions to those kinds of people. That's so good. AJ, I, man, Every one of these questions want to give birth to a full conversation, but I we yep. we have we have just a few minutes here, yep. maybe thirty more minutes before you got to go teach your class. Uh, so I'm gonna this this one you touched on it already, but this question is the top of the list. Uh, someone someone emailed Parkhill from within the church. My darkest season of doubt was ushered in when I experienced devastating abuse and betrayal by a quote air quotes Christian peer. This resulted in significant relationship trauma, which sent me on a path questioning and doubting God's love for me. I wasn't questioning this because I experienced something horrible and evil. I understand that suffering is part of our broken world. I was questioning his love for me because my deep cry for justice was met with perceived silence. I needed to experience a father who would defend me, advocate for me, seek justice for me. And I kept hitting the same wall over and over asking God the same question, and it's this, does my pain and what's been done to me not matter to you? Is it not significant enough to you to seek measurable justice for your child? And I understand justice will never fully be realized this side of heaven, but I'm seeking wisdom and insight on the following. How should we process God's righteous justice when we experience evil by those who also proclaim the title, Jesus follower? especially when they appear to continue thriving and when we can't even see evidence of his justice unfolding? What truths do we need to remember and keep remembering? Thank you. My goodness gracious. Um, As I said with the previous um,
1: question, my initial response is one of, I wanna be a pastor and say, um, you're incredible and you're awesome and your willingness to be in the room and continue to seek Jesus in the way that you are is in and of itself a witness to your love for God. So, beautiful. Um, I hear in that question a lot of pain, and a lot of pain that has been leveraged as a result of things that have happened in a community that should be a place of healing and love. And it is often where we are most hurt, uh, or most healed is often the place where we are most hurt, Um uh, One of the images that Eugene Peterson uses a lot that I I really resonate with is he he talks about this idea of, um, you know, when you go to the hospital to get healed, you often get sick at the hospital. There's a whole set of diseases you get at the hospital called iatrogenic diseases, which are diseases you get in the place that should be the healing place. And when you go to church as a place of healing and there you are hurt, it is a very deep violation of your sense of self of your uh, sense of calling, of your sense of hope. And I think for a lot of people, that leads them to walk away from the church as a result of the pain that is leveraged in the church. Mm -hmm. And so we feel like I can't be a part of a system that's complicit and broken. And my response is um, that I I would say, A, your healing um, is of God's utmost concern. And sometimes if you've been wounded in church, you need to find healing uh, in safer places, like maybe you need to find a healing in a, in a in a counseling office, spiritual direction um, in in an environment like that. Sometimes it means going back and confronting things. Sometimes it means naming things that are hard to name with the people that hurt you. Um, but at the end of the day, um, it is absolutely central that you understand that where you are hurt, God grieves alongside you and does not in any way, shape, or form endorse your trauma. God is grieved at what happened to you. And God is absolutely committed to you experiencing healing and freedom. Um, How God does the healing and freedom, that is up to God. Um, And I would trust trust you to rely on some people at the church to ask, what are directions I can go uh, to find that healing?
0: Yeah. And on that, yeah. Amen, AJ. And whoever asked that question, just speaking on behalf of the leadership of Park Hill Church, we have a pastoral care team that is very well trained in dealing with trauma and opening safe. I know that's a buzzword today, but we mean it in the sense that, you know, no sin is safe in God's presence and yet all people are And who, 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 who desire God's presence to invade their lives and show them the, the way truth and life that Jesus is. And so we have a pastoral care team that's ready for this stuff. Like we're ready for you. We're ready for this stuff and we're here for you. And so, um, if the next step for you is to maybe go, I mean, first of all, I can't imagine the amount of bravery that's required to step forward with this to, to a real life pastor. Um, well one of our pastors um you know is a li- he's working on his license in marriage and family therapy his name's greg pikin um and he he just specializes in dealing with trauma that specifically came from spiritual abuse that's trauma inflicted by those that are claiming some kind of divine authority for the trauma they're inflicting so uh mm. yeah mm. just we we're i just want you i want you to say thank you and and we're ready for this if you're ready so um just email the church and we'll treat you with respect and dignity and honor. So, um, yeah. And the, the, the next question, AJ, man, I feel like a whiplash tour through people's real lives right now, but um, not to move on too quick, but we got to move on. So this question came up multiple times, both um, from the church and through social media, when we put it out, just, just in case we ran out of time with just in case we ran out of questions from within the church We asked on social media and this one was big there too. And it's really about hell and Mm. judgment. And, um, and uh, yeah, I've heard this in conversation around our church as well. And it's basically AJ's sermon was relevant for me. I felt like Phil, that was a person you brought up from your, Mm -hmm. from your life. Someone that's been on it on again, off again with Jesus. I felt like Phil for past few years. Um, almost left my faith due to my struggle in the Christian belief that we need to explicitly accept Jesus to be saved. Uh, The part that gets me thinking about all the people out there who've been hurt by the church grew up in other cultures, you know, the classic, you know, the the tribal warrior in Papua New Guinea, who's never heard Mm. anything remotely close to a religion out of the Middle East. Mm. Um, So um, what about that person, including people like my mom, who I love this person says, It's hard for me to accept that all those people, including people like my mom, will go to hell. Imagining a heaven without these people doesn't feel like heaven to me. How can a good and justified God let people go to hell at all? I get that none of us deserve heaven, all that, blah, blah, blah. (laughs) But the idea of some of us in heaven and others in hell is so painful to think about, feels unjust. And so this painful cycle leads me to ask these questions. Number one, can I be a Christian? And believe that Jesus' sacrifice saves even more than just explicit believers? Mm. Yeah. Uh, can I be a Christian and not even really believe in the hell that I received? Mm. And, yeah. and is it okay living with the I don't know on hell and mm. still be a Christian? How do I move past this doubt? I feel like I'm mourning my mom. I'm mourning my mother and other non-believers every time I think about this. And I don't want to mourn them yeah. anymore. My goodness
1: hmm. <clears throat> um i i uh, am where i'm at right now lecturing uh, on uh, the apostles and Nicene creed, which is the two of the earliest documents that represent uh, what we call early Christian orthodoxy, uh, Christian orthodoxy, the kind of the core ideas of what it means to be a believer. And I'm struck that in, in, in these early church documents, uh, that there is a, an explicit belief uh, in hell. Um, we believe in God, the father, we believe in Jesus, and we believe in the judgment uh, of those to come. And we believe that Christ descended to hell that hell is a part of the, the the Christian Orthodox tradition. It's a part of uh, our, our belief structure. And my problem with hell uh, is is how much I don't like it um, and how much I emotionally rebel against it. I just don't like it. Um, but for me as a Christian, I have to recognize that um, believing something and liking it are not the same thing. and And that sometimes I believe in things that I don't like and it's really hard. Um, and I do, with all, with all my heart, I do believe that um, that's that believing in some aspect of 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 God's righteous judgment uh, is a core part of being uh, being a Christian. Now, do I believe that the Orthodox tradition, as in the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, requires you to believe in uh, annihilation or eternal conscious torment or one of those views? I don't see a, a particular interpretation required in those early Orthodox. Documents, but I do see a belief uh, in, in the doctrine of hell as being an important thing.
0: Can uh, there you, was, uh, can, sorry to interrupt. Can you on um, just super quick one sentence definition of eternal conscious torment and then uh, one sentence on annihilation? What are those two different views of hell? Well,
1: yeah, the annihilationist view would say that uh, there is a point at which, uh, upon desiring rejection of God, one ceases to exist, they are annihilated, ceasing to exist an eternal conscious torment uh, would would be the perspective that would say that hell is a, a forever conscious experience of a place of separation from god and so you know both both fit in the category of of hell of of being separated from god um but You know, I was going to mention years ago, I read this really interesting study uh, that the University of Oregon did, um, and I'm from Eugene, Oregon, where the U of O is, and the psychology department did a a study on hell, and they asked, how does belief in hell actually change people's lives? And what they found was, ironically, the oddest thing is that people who believe in hell are like half as likely to commit violent crime. And what this, I mean, from a you know, secular research institution, <laughs> it's, this, this isn't you know Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, um, this idea that actually having a sense of coming face-to-face with the choices in our life and accountability actually ends up changing our lives. And I will say, as a Christian, I need the doctrine of hell because Jesus warned his disciples about hell. He said, he warns his own disciples of hell. I need the doctrine of hell. Because I've been in the room when the name of God has been used to harm and traumatize God. So as a Christian, it's very important for me as to speaking to um, all the peoples of the world, That, that is beyond the scope of what we can cover here. But what I can say is, I would strongly suggest hell is intentionally, it is intentionally a part of the early Christian witness and a part of the biblical tradition and i think it's dangerous to chuck it i think it's dangerous
0: Hmm. thank you aj that's very clear um so this one's about parenting how would you both navigate (laughs) from hell to parenting okay Okay. yeah this is whiplash stuff maybe we should (laughs) unpack the hell thing a little more i mean i mean it Mm. seems like what what she he I, i i don't know why I'm assuming. I only have a, a single initial here. So it's uh, mm-hmm. B what B is working through is the idea of grief over family. Yep. And I, and I heard the same thing from a guy that we prayed for a couple Sundays ago, his, his one issue with the Christian faith he's trying to embrace is the idea that his, uh, he has a family of world religions. Really, he has atheist, Buddhist, all over the map in his pretty close family, and he's just like, man, I am. They're they're my favorite people in the world. They're my family. I love them. I live for our get-togethers. Yes. And when I when when I think of the doctrine of hell existing in my family, mm. um, it's almost immediately traumatic to me, yep. Um, yep. because it just grates against what I know of their character. They're more they're more amazing than. Me and I'm a Christian, <laughs> and uh, and so, yeah. I w- I wonder if there's a little more you could say about, um. You know how how belief needs to attach itself to hell. I think of I think of the folks who don't ever really get the opportunity to consider the clear gospel of Jesus Christ revealed yeah. through the scriptures, and I think of Romans one where it's like, man all of creation has left humans with enough to go by (laughs) to respond to the living triune God in some way. But what if that living triune God is not clarified as Jesus and they don't even know he's triune, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm. I just think of that stuff where there's plenty of speculation there, but it's like, man, Mm. um, for me, I just rest on the fact that God is more fair than I can fathom.
1: Yes. Yes. So what does that mean? Well, Evan, likely you've had the same experience that I have as a pastor, when you are invited to come in and do a funeral for somebody that did not claim the name of Jesus and the family, you know, will ask, uh, where is, um, my child now? Where is my family member now? Where's my mom now? Um, as though we get to make those sorts of eternal judgments on somebody's behalf for the sake of a funeral, um, But this desire to, you know, we want to know, we want to know where the people that we love are, um, you know, Jesus in in a way when he taught on the kingdom and he said, you know, unless you hate your mother and your father and your children, and don't come after me that you're not worthy of the kingdom. And those are harsh teachings. They're hard, but what Jesus is getting at there is he's saying, um, you know, in a world where we can easily idolize, uh, people, um, the Kingdom confronts us and asks us to um, to to put King the kingdom of God first, God first, and then those relationships have a new context. Mm-hmm. But, but back to the funeral thing. Um, what I do in a funeral, uh, which is very common, I don't think I'm the only person that does this, is I have to in those moments when I don't get to speak about the eternal state of somebody, is I don't rely on my answer of judgment as though my answer makes makes it a reality. I rely on the love and goodness of God. And I get to Mm -hmm. declare that that God loved that person more than I do. And the and the absolute joy that I get to have knowing that the God who hung on the cross is the God who eternally holds each and every person. That is something I can place my hope in. Mm -hmm. Um, And and knowing that that God is a just and good God that the God of the cross uh is the same God who um makes eternal calls and that and that yeah. to me I'm so glad I'm not in that position so so grateful to God I'm yeah. not in that position
0: yeah who's who's wise enough and powerful enough to actually straighten out every crooked politician and every mm. corrupt government who's who's wise only Jesus is strong and wise enough to do that, and I'm included in that um cosmic need for his grace. Uh, I find
1: direction. that there's there's certain people that I believe in annihilation for, and certain people I wish for eternal conscious torment for. Depending on if I like the person or not. That's um, great. in the, the what I'm saying is, yeah. I. I I, uh, I, I think it was Woody Allen who said, "Like uh, uh, hell is the place for everybody who I don't like." Um, it, you know, it's I, I've often wondered if actually we don't believe in hell as much as we just want a place for people that annoy us, and if that's our understanding of hell, uh, we probably need to return to the biblical text and get a yeah.
0: broader vision for, <laughs> uh, so for what the text. Hundred uh, percent. Oh man! So so to move um, somewhat awkwardly to a question on parenting. Mm. Um, so. This is also pretty heavy. As parents, how would you both navigate a conversation with your teen or young adult Mm. if they express doubt that God actually cares for them after they've experienced severe relational trauma at the hands of another Christian that's a peer? So it happened in youth group. It's supposed to be the place where God's kingdom is being articulated. And yet, my gosh, there's more bullying there than in my school or whatever. Um, and so they're experiencing this difficulty. What would your goal and your focus be through that conversation with that child? Goodness gracious! Uh, my
1: ten-year-old kiddo and I—we, uh, I think the smartest thing that we did during COVID was we bought a hot tub. Um, it was, I think, is the best <laughs> we've ever made uh, as a family. Uh, life-changing, really. Uh, and we have this nightly liturgy. Uh, where we, as a family get into the hot tub in the evening, and that's where we do our talking. that's where we do our processing of the days. We just sit in a hot tub and 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 talk it out. And I've learned about my son that um he when he brings up he's he's a little theologian, like he has all the questions about the Bible and God and um and and, and all the and all the good stuff. And I've found that when he brings his questions or his um and his concerns and his pain or whatever it may be, that there are times, There are times when he brings that up in the hot tub, there are times that he wants me to respond. And there are times he wants me to shut up and listen and just be there. Mm -hmm. And actually the worst, the worst moments are when I assume that I need to respond when really out. He just wants me to sit with him. Um, And I've had to learn the lesson as a dad to discern the difference between the two. And it requires that I ask and I have to say to him, Elliot, do you want me to, is this one of those moments where I get to be a good dad and listen or is this one of those moments where you want me to help me walk through the issue with you? And if I don't ask that, and I assume then, uh, usually it's not helpful. He needs to know that I'm the safest person in the world for him to bring his stuff to. That is one of the greatest roles that I bring is that I am the safest person for him to talk about it. Cause if he, if he cannot talk to me about it, then he will find somebody on TikTok to talk about it with, yeah, uh, he'll sure. find somebody to talk about it anywhere else. I need to be My goal as a parent is to be the safest person for him to talk. And that means that I honor whether he wants me to listen or whether he wants me to respond. And more often than not, it is that he wants someone in the foxhole with him. He doesn't want an answer from his dad. He wants somebody who can sit with him. I heard somebody say the two greatest things you can say to a kid in those kinds of moments. Trauma may be a bit nuanced, but just saying this is very powerful. That stinks and I believe in you. Those two sentences, that stinks, and I believe in you, imprint on your child a deep sense of existential stability that they are most loved by the people that brought them into this world. In those moments when we are hurt by the church, then the family can play the place of healing to restore those relationships or to, or to mend what needs to be mended. And and unfortunately it's the opposite. It's often the opposite that when we're most hurt in our families, by God's grace, the church becomes the place that we are healed. Mm. But sometimes that needs to be the case is that as parents, we support our kids in the way that the church couldn't Mm. because they they don't just get one hand, they get both hands together. So that's, that happens, you know, by God's grace, um, we don't experience that kind of trauma, but for many of us we do. And as parents, we need to be the safest, flipping, safest people for our kids to bring that stuff up. That's
0: so good. That's so good. It reminds me of what Pete Scazzaro says: pastoring is reparenting. Hmm. Um, and the need for reparenting is because of our families of origin. And when I step back, I'm realize I'm like, oh, I'm leading the family of origin <laughs> for my kids. Hmm. Yes. <laughs> and what you're saying is how to be a I, you know, I heard one speaker 20 years ago just say, I'm trying to parent in a way that my kids have to unlearn and undo as little as possible, but it's like almost impossible to <laughs> be, be the kind of parent you wish you were. Um, but man, I am, my wife and I are leading the family of origin for my children, and when, and <laughs> which, which is the thing that pastoring is reparenting people out of families of origin terrified, terrified. <laughs> so we have a my son has a
1: college fund uh we call it the college slash counseling fund um so he can use it for higher education or for years of counseling to undo the um years of family
0: of origin issues that we've managed to leverage upon his soul yeah and, and we're leveraging them hopefully well but not always um so this is the last question from the church that uh that came in from sunday um I guess there's a couple more, but I think you've touched on them generally. But this one specifically related to something you said in the sermon about that healing story Mm -hmm. where that that man um, became a Christian and received his sight from Jesus all in the same instant. So I love what you said, too. That doesn't always happen. You pray for someone, they get healed. Uh, But when it does, you freaking preach on it. (laughs) That was a great line. That line worked because it's true. But but so most of our experience is that it doesn't happen. So um, this question is, what do you do with doubt when you've been a Christian your whole life and desperately want to feel slash hear slash see Holy spirit move. I hear stories like the one you shared on Sunday about the man receiving his sight. And I've never seen anything like that, even though Hmm. that's extreme, even though that's extreme. um, Why does the Holy spirit seem to be more active in some people, places, whatever. And why is he silent when someone who's walked with Jesus so long wants to hear him and nothing dot, dot, dot. Mm. Yeah. So
1: I I have students who asked this question in the, in the class, why in my undergraduate classes, why do, why when I go to Africa, do I see this stuff, but I don't see it here. Like what's, what is there like more is like the spirit, like doing more in Africa than, than here. Um, and there's a couple maybe there's a couple ways to think about this um that, that may be helpful. Uh the one is I think that part of the problem is our definition of a miracle and what we mean by the miraculous and what we mean by the supernatural. Um, because if for us uh, the miraculous is only seeing a guy receive a sight again, then that's a narrow constraint to what um uh, the miraculous and supernatural may be. When in reality, I don't understand why we would not consider a sunset to be miraculous. Why? Why is lunch not the supernatural on some level? Like the fact that we have food today. You know, I've always I thought about that story of Jesus at the at the wedding. He turns water into wine, and um, the uh, the the servants know that Jesus did the miracle, but the uh, the party didn't. Um, and I, I want I've often wondered if part of the problem is when when you live in a world where all your needs are taken care of. Um, What is for the servant, a miracle for you? It's just a party. Like you can't see, you can't always see the miracle because, um, because, you know, power, privilege and having everything you want keeps you from seeing it. So part of it is your definition of a miracle. But I think on the other hand, I would say, um, if you don't see the miraculous, you're blessed. Because uh, a, a wicked generation needs the miraculous. And blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe, Jesus tells Thomas. And uh, if you don't get to see the miraculous, uh, it's you're blessed. <laughs> and, and, and because you're still following Jesus, because you don't need those things to follow Jesus. And be blessed. Hmm. It's people like me who I think God pities and gives a miracle from time to time to keep me going. Uh, it's people like you who probably have deep faith and don't need to see the Fidel's healed in order to keep going. Yeah. So, be
0: blessed. Yeah. Uh sign of your maturity and faith. That's, you touched on something I think that's important, and the staff had a meeting afterwards on Monday, and we had a couple questions of our own. Um, you know, you talked about power and privilege in places um, that that allow us or hinder us from seeing God's work in different ways. So, if you use the word deconstruction, just that word, we didn't, wow. even, we didn't even get, we didn't even get into like the word, the meaning of the word and how, what we mean by it, what we don't mean by it, but just all that aside, people who use that word today, you know, you talk about TikTok or whatever. You, if you have a TikTok, it means you have a mobile device that is very expensive. <laughs> You're probably a certain kind of person. If you use that word from a certain demographic yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. and, 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 and maybe even with a certain level of education. So how should this whole conversation about the meaning behind the word, like this unraveling of spiritual certainty. How how does it spread across cultures and across power dynamics? How should this conversation take shape when speaking to folks uh, in other socioeconomic situations and classes and cultures? Mm. How should we think about deconstruction?
1: Well, I'm I'm probably not going to say what you want me to say, and I'm probably not going to say what people uh, who are experiencing the deconstruction that you're talking about on TikTok are going to want me to say, because I, I do think that there's an element at which um, the kind of deconstruction that you're talking about, which is is the kind of undoing of um, uh, the witness of 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 the Bible and the witness of the church, and sort of undoing what we believe about God uh, for some whatever reason may be, uh, I would contend that for many that, that deconstruction can easily be a mark of privilege. That when when I spend time among the poor, when I spend time among uh, people of color, when I spend time in environments um, where people don't have iPhones, uh, deconstruction is not a thing. They just love God. And God is their everything. And they don't have time to sit around and have conversations about which French postmodernist philosopher uh, they think best critiques the, you know, the 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 Western world or something like that. Um, I, it's ironic to me that the happiest people I know are the people who don't have iPhones, um, and the people who I know who are most enjoying their life don't care about TikTok. And I'm, I'm not saying that those environments are bad, but I do think that experience of deconstruction can at times be a, a kind of weird privilege that comes among people that have everything, um, that, that have a, a good life or have a cush life that is not to discount in any way, shape or form individuals uh, yeah. who have experienced trauma in the church. and have been deeply wounded. I'm not discounting any of those experiences whatsoever, but there is a brand of deconstruction that can be reflect what you're talking about. Um, So uh, at the end of the day, um, I don't get to pick and choose which people I think reflect that category. I'm called to love every human being, and I'm not going to sit around in judgment and try to figure out who is who. Um, But the people that I know who have most joy in their life don't have an iPhone. So
0: there's something to that. So last question on this. Sometimes (laughs) God might be the one allowing a certain type of deconstruction that we're experiencing. Oh, my, gosh. Oh my Other goodness. times, it's not necessarily God. How do you tell the difference? And, it, you know, it, to, to use Paul's categories, flesh versus spirit work, um, when, when is deconstruction good mm-hmm. uh, and, and when is it not? Yep. Yeah, there's, there is a, there's a form of
1: deconstruction that um, is, I would contend, is somebody's deep desire to want to follow God. And uh, when I'm sitting in my office in office hours, and I've got a kid who was raised in a church that gave them really, really bad theology, and they want to follow God, part of the process of following Jesus and getting back to the Bible is undoing their theology to, in order to get back to Jesus. And that process, we have a word for that, you know, in the in the Christian tradition, uh, and it's the word metanoia in the New Testament. It's our word for repentance. Mm. That form of deconstruction is undoing lies. In order to follow Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, not the Jesus of our imagination, the Jesus of the Bible. That is, if if somebody is deconstructing lies in order to follow Jesus, that's repentance. And we should celebrate that to the ends of the earth. Um, But if what what we're talking about as deconstruction is really somebody chucking the Bible and their faith because ultimately they want to smoke what they want to smoke and sleep with who they want to sleep with, that's not the same thing. So, But unfortunately, we live in a moment where people use the same word to talk about both experiences. And my task as a leader and my task as a shepherd and somebody who cares about people is to discern the difference between those two. And by God's grace and only through the power of the Holy Spirit and relationship that I can help walk people through discerning uh, what is of the Lord and what is not of the Lord. And I'm not... I'm not serving anybody when I make blanket statements that say things like all deconstruction is bad mm-hmm. because it's not. Sometimes deconstruction is somebody undoing a lie to follow Jesus. So don't good. blanket statement that as though it's the same exact thing as somebody that, that, that is chucking their faith because of X, Y, and Z. They want to just go do their own thing. I mean, when you were, listen, when I became a Christian at 16 and then was given my first Bible, I was given two books. When I first got saved, I was given a Bible and I kissed dating goodbye. And that book had a residual (laughs) impact on my faith for a long time that has required intentional deconstruction Hmm. to undo wrong ideas uh, of what uh, Caitlin Beatty calls the prosperity, the sexual prosperity gospel. That undoing of, of, of just prosperity, gospel ideas around sexuality, that was a part of my liberation into the kingdom of God. And it took a lot of time and energy. And I, 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 I know many of the people that want to love God just know there were times that they were just given theology that is just not Bible.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, man, AJ, I am honoring your time by cutting it here. I could go for another hour. I'm so sad that we don't have another a whole series of podcasts we could do with your voice speaking into the concerns of today. I want to thank you for being present to our community last Sunday in person, just in, in the flesh, preaching in the spirit, and then, and then here today following up. It's just so beautiful, and I, I want to just say again, Pastoral Park Hill Church like if anything arose out of this that you want to process with the pastoral care team, we're here for it for real. Like we do not want to undermine or tritely wave off uh, actual processing that you're doing in your soul with a Q and a session. Um, mm-hmm. The purpose for me of Q and a, and this is new, the purpose of Q and a to me, it has to be pastoral care. It can't just be trivia. And so um yeah. Send in an email, um, meet with, meet with one of us to process anything that rose out of, out of this for your heart. And AJ, thank you. Thank you for being here. Oh man, you, Evan, you're a gift to the church and your church is a gift to the church. It was an honor to be with everybody. Oh, you're very kind. And, uh, we look forward to the next time you can come visit hopefully 2023. Um, just say yes right now. On record. Okay,
1: and my sermon will be less; it will be shorter than sixty-seven minutes. That's my you,
0: commitment. Y- you now hold the Park Hill sermon length record. <laughs> Just go to the podcast, folks. Sixty-seven minutes forty-six seconds.
1: <laughs> I'm so no, it's,
0: sorry. It's, oh, no we're, we're on the edge. We're on the edge of our seats the whole time. Thank you for for being there. And you have a class to teach one minute ago, so I'll let you go. Church, may the Lord bless and keep you, and may His face shine upon you and bring you peace. God bless.